Good afternoon. Hopefully we're all right. That's the glitchiest start. My first show of May. I wasn't on yesterday. You had the students take over yesterday for the first Tuesday of the month. So this is my first show in May and the countdown timer thing didn't work. So here we are. You've got the blaring music intro instead. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Make sure you settle my paranoia and tell me whether or not you're getting my audio through, whether you can see me okay. Signal looks okay. And I've just been having a lovely little preamble chat with our guests today about something that, if anything, the, you know, the, the fact that we've only got half an hour is the thing that pains me. So I'm going to shut up and bring them in uh, and get stuck into the conversation. But thanks for joining. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're new around here, I'm Jack Chew, and we chew it over every weekday from 12.30 till 1 o'clock for whatever's topical. And one of the things that's topical is, of course, what emerges from our longer-form podcasts, especially now that we are a network of them. We have a podcast with Joe Turner called You Matter, part of her Mehab project, which is absolutely taking the world by storm, and deservedly so at the moment. And so if you listen to that episode, then great. If not, you can revisit it after this. It's compatible with it, uh, which is certainly about imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome feelings, which is what Margaret Collins, Joe's guest on that podcast, unpacked a little bit. And there's a few things that really got our, our chins wagging um, in, the, in the Choose Health, Choose Media team about that, that I just felt like I wanted to bring forward and put to Joe and Margaret. And so kindly, they've lent me a bit of their time today. So hopefully in a couple of clicks, I can bring them in and thank you so much here for I'm going to mispronounce this. So Italia, Talia K has said she can see and hear me. So thank you so much, Talia, for putting my mind at rest today. Let's bring in Joe Turner and Margaret Collins. Can you hear me? Yep. I've obscured, Loud and clear, yeah. I've obscured Margaret with a logo. There we go. That's better. That's, that's better. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. So I want to I want to jump straight in then, Joe, with how um what do you just reflections on that podcast as well as how well received it is and, and also the fact that like any good podcast it's, it's brought with it more questions and more conversation about imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome feelings so how, how do you feel it went down uh, it was one of my well there have only been a few podcasts but uh, definitely a favorite one <laughs> at this it's point your, your top 10 since yes my favorite margaret <laughs> <laughs> So I, I knew Margaret a little bit beforehand and we'd had some discussions around imposter syndrome um, feelings and uh, the podcast had me nodding all the way through as I knew it would and nodding on behalf of all health professionals because the first time I ever heard Margaret talk about this kind of stuff, um, I could see how relevant it was to the general population, but it just seemed to speak to the, I guess, uh, quite a typical psyche of a health professional. And the podcast was a really nice opportunity to dig a little bit into um, how much this uh, is prevalent in the general population, how much more prevalent it seems to be in health professionals, a little bit about gender, which I know we're going to pick apart a little bit, but it was just a lovely opportunity to talk in more depth to Margaret. And I wasn't surprised, but the feedback um, and the conversation after this podcast has been immense. Um, you know, every conversation I have with a health professional at the moment, imposter syndrome feelings gets brought up in some way, shape or form, and people are using the words. So, yeah, it's, it really has raised the conversation, which is what UMAT is all about. Absolutely. Now, Margaret, could you offer us the distinction as you see it between imposter syndrome and what is often used in common parlance and increasingly so and why you clarify it as imposter syndrome feelings could you just offer that distinction for us for me anything that has a syndrome indicates that it's something that's sort of medically diagnosable right imposter syndrome is not a medically diagnosable condition but it is a collection of feelings and therefore i like to use 
imposter syndrome feelings because it's not that something's wrong with you. It's just you've got a collection of feelings. And those feelings are real and genuine. They are what you feel, but they can be helpful or unhelpful. And that's what I really like to unpack with people. Recognize that you have the feelings. Some of them are helpful. Some of them are less helpful. What do you want to do about it? Gotcha. One of the things that's happened in our industry is we've come to, we're quite used to increasingly, not that we're necessarily any good at it, and we are finding it challenging because it's an emergent science, but the discussing with people the differences between perception and reality as people see it, people come in to see us, just to give a crude example, feeling like I've got a glass back, I can't move it, is a perception that's not necessarily representative of the robustness yeah. as we understand it. And so we're often trying to help people navigate that and it's a challenging thing so i think that that's one of the things that's lit the touch paper on this is that people are recognizing that in these instances even sometimes in themselves and with others close to them that helping people to understand that how accurate is your self-diagnosis on this stuff is that am i describing in far longer terms than need, needs be what what that kind of is is that the perception not being representative of the reality by any rational analysis oh absolutely and people who are badly affected by imposter syndrome feelings have a particularly harsh and unhelpful judgment of reality in many situations. Mm. You know, that they have a set of filters and a set of limiting beliefs that basically put them at a disadvantage in many mm. situations. Mm. And then they internalize that and believe their own interpretation of beliefs, which is, you know, it feeds into a, a, a vicious negative cycle. Gotcha. Now, Joe, how rec how recognisable are those things amongst your, um, you know, obviously we can't go into specifics, of course, but your, you know, your your clients and your coaching experience, how representative is that, especially in, in our industry? Hugely representative. Um, I'd say it comes up without fail in some way, shape or form whenever I talk to a clinician. And what Margaret's just said, I think, really speaks to uh, us looking at the way we work. So... You know, we carry this um, sense around that we almost need to be perfect and have it all together. We kind of probably know that each other, that we all have these these feelings of self-doubt, but we don't classically talk to each other about that. We might, um, on a brave day, go and admit to someone that we don't know what to do with a patient um, and seek their advice. Yeah. But we, you know, we just we just don't. I didn't know that it's embarrassment that we, why we don't bring it up, but it just doesn't seem to be at the moment part of our natural way of being with each other, which is intriguing because we're generally quite open people and quite gregarious, chatty people. But um, yeah, it, it, as you say, it is like a touch paper. You light it and then it's, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Let's talk about it. Permission is, <laughs> it's that social permission almost, you know, mm. that seems to have occurred where we've opened those floodgates. I'm mixing my metaphors now. We've got touch paper, we've got <laughs> floodgates, we've got all sorts going on. Now, what, one of the things that you've mentioned clinically, I think some of the best clinicians will end up in a specific context, having the humility to come and say, I just want to, I want to understand your take on this matter, please. You know, I feel like I could do with a second pair of eyes on this and stuff. And it feels like that, you know, good, good clinicians have sort of recognized and humble enough to do that. Now, but to some extent, the, the context specificity around that is almost comfortable and familiar. Sometimes even mm -hmm. it's the imposter that's doing that. So then actually it's a, a next layer, isn't it? It's almost that actually I'm, I'm, I'm feeling quite vulnerable more generally, independent of the context, whereby I'm, I'm somewhat limited, not necessarily crippled, there's no wrong term, but limited by the self-doubt that's sort of pervasive and is 
irrelevant of the specific circumstance. And it's that that seems to be pervasive. Just how, dis Margaret, how disabling is that for some people? And, and, and you know, when we think about the, the, the limitations, you know, it's obviously going to be a, a spectrum as ever, but yeah. in its worst forms, I, you know, it sounds like from what you were saying on the podcast, it can be really, really self-limiting. Yes, uh, there's research study after research study that shows that people who associate high on the score for imposter syndrome feelings also have higher levels of incidence of stress, anxiety, depression. Uh, they show less career striving and less job satisfaction than people who don't score highly for imposter syndrome feelings. And so it really does affect real lives and real careers. I completely see it. Sorry, Jack, to interrupt, but oh, no, that's no. one of the things that I, it really gets me angry in our profession on behalf of other people, you know, how much self-limitation there is. And, you know, Margaret described on the podcast how people won't go for jobs that they're eminently qualified for, and then they'll sit back and watch other underqualified people take them from them. Um, and, it, you know, it's heartbreaking. And I, I see that a lot in physios, particularly. Um, and you did a sort of acknowledgement that you know what you're doing, and you're expert, and you're qualified, and you're a high achiever. But going to that next level to actually go for what you actually deserve. It, we were really good at limiting ourselves, aren't we? Mm -hmm. I, I want to um, probably double back around on that if we've got time about how somewhat, because that's so pervasive in the culture, it does mean that you end up with this, another syndrome that's not a syndrome, tall poppy syndrome, in which yeah. to some extent you've created this environment in which then when someone does to, to, to use another analogy in this space, lean into it and think, no, I'm actually, I'm actually well qualified for this. When they do that, especially when it's something that in an environment of which it's unusual to, sometimes that then means that the culture sort of trims them back and only perpetuates the issue. And so we end up then with this cycle of injustice, whereby sometimes the, the you know, the, the bold and loud might, might step forward and, 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 and steal some of the oxygen. So again, I'm, I'm, that's one too many metaphors, even from my <laughs> Now, I've got a few comments that have already come in. Thank you so much for those that are already participating. We really do want to hear your thoughts on this and truly chew it over together today. Ria said, is it fear or failure? Ooh, that's very interesting and definitely one that both ladies have just talked, spoke to. Um, some hellos as well from various different parts of the world. Kiora Tafarin, thank you so much for, for your contributions. Fiona Taylor is, sorry, Taylor Bullmore has said, it's not embarrassment by not knowing, but probably more frightened that people will find me out that time and then, Oh, there we go. We've got more. Uh, not good enough. So it's risk aversion. Now, that seems to speak to the definitions that you're both describing, really. And that's the imposter that's hiding is this, you know, and, and just out of interest, when, when you've worked with various clients in various different contexts and, and, and experienced it, no doubt, we've all admitted as, ourselves, who, who is it that's going to find people out? Is it typically that, that in, it's, it's the patients themselves, it's our fellow colleagues, it's what regulators like? I'm, I'm I'm fascinated who it is that people are most frightened of. I guess. Margaret, I'll let you go first if you want. Well, from my experience, it's the people who can affect your career. Um, most people, if, if if my background is in academia, and most people in academia are perfectly comfortable talking to undergraduates or you know students who they know know less than them. Right. The minute they start talking to people who might potentially know more than them, and they often don't know more than them, but the fear is that they might. They are, you know, the professors, the, the people who can make the, the hires and the fires, the promotions, or the, you know, actually contract is not being extended. Those are the people that we're really afraid of. So people that 
we want to respect this professionally. It's often about professional respect. Can't you? Yeah, Joe? I'd say mine's a little bit more nebulous, Margaret. Um, so looking back, I, I think this is quite autobiographical, but I think I almost created this this being and, and Jack's right to say, you know, who is it? Because I would struggle to articulate. It's like this, this thing that sits next to me and, and it's authority, it's friends, it's my own head, it's my dad, you know, it's everybody all sort of that I managed to meld into this cloud of judgment that just kind of sits, sits there. <laughs> and I think us at the center of it and our inner critic is, is absolutely key because imposter syndrome if you look at the general population, it affects about 70% of people at some stage in their life or their career. Yeah. If you look in professions where intelligence and expertise are valued, the figures go up to 90%, you know, the high 90s right. of people who are affected by imposter syndrome feelings at some stage. Mm. And in, in these careers, in your careers, there are, there's this ideal of being an expert, of being familiar with the research and the literature and the practice and the, you know, the evidence-based procedures and what really works. And yet the more expert we are, the more we know that everything is just beyond us, that you cannot know everything and that everything is out there to be discovered still because you know, everything is evolving and growing as we gain more knowledge and more experience. And so we're balancing this, we should be an expert with absolutely, I, don't, I know I don't know everything. And it's how we yeah. resolve that. And I think for many of us, that's when our inner critic absolutely has a field day. Absolutely. No, th thank you um, again for the, the comments, guys. I, I really appreciate these. And, and I'm just going to get stuck into some of the questions that have truly emerged from me and my team that I want to get to that I've, uh, I've sent ahead of time to, to Margaret and Joe. But Jennifer said that she totally relates to the point about professional respect speaking to inner critic. It's often that's the that's the bogeyman, isn't it? That's what Joe's just described as being this concoction that can sometimes sit on our shoulder. And then I will come to it. And I want to ask you guys as an audience as well, how much do you argue that that is the fuel for the fire and therefore you wouldn't want to douse it? And, and how much is it the, the, you know, the, the, the actually the limiting factor that, that can sometimes lead to, I'll stick with that metaphor and burn you out, said fire. So what I, um, what I want to get to though is, Margaret, you'd mentioned then 70% and then even 90% in certain circumstances. I am wanting to go to the point that when the statistics are, the percentages are so high, then you end up in a situation that that's the majority quite comfortably. Therefore, that is just too human. Is it part of the human condition of which we do have that? And therefore, how vulnerable might we be if we then try to infer that that is pathological? You know, if it's something that is to be, to be human, then we want to make sure we account for it rather than just address it as if to neutralize it, I guess. Absolutely. I'm not sure that I can cure imposter syndrome feelings. In fact, I know I can't, right. and I'm not sure I even want to, okay. because that being able to evaluate your performance and see where you can improve is an absolutely essential part of being a professional. It comes back to how badly is it affecting you? I always weigh things up under the, is it helpful or not helpful? If it's helpful and it drives your work and it leads you to have healthy high standards, then that's great. It's just about managing the anxiety that you might feel in anticipation of something. But I, I wouldn't want to eliminate it because then you might take things for granted, get blasé, not do you know the, the preparation that is important to do before the job. That's And we've spoken a bit about this, Joe, haven't we? Uh, on and yeah. off air about the fact that, you know, how much... Do some people recognize 
recognise some of the experience that others have admitted have limited them, have ended up being fuel underneath their ambitions. When do you feel it does become something that is at fault and is it really individualised? I, I think my view is that it doesn't have to be that way. And I speak as someone who definitely used that inner critic to drive myself for years. And I think what I've realised is that I can balance my inner critic with a much more fun and generous voice that kind of just takes everything a little bit more lightly and says, okay, yes, we need to work hard. You're never gonna stop working hard, but I don't think it's your imposter that makes you work hard or your inner critic that makes you work hard. You work hard because you're a conscientious, driven, enthusiastic being. I think the imposter voice just mm, puts a little bit of poison into the water that doesn't need to be there. You will still be driven. I think, sorry, I'm not answering your question. I think it becomes a problem when you, I guess you start to believe that everything has to be hard and difficult and unhappy, um, whereas you can still drive and have fun and, and bring joy into that that drive. And I, I think, think that, that, well, that's something I hadn't really considered even coming into this conversation. But I suppose one of the things that might have happened is the, the efforts that you might have needed to make when creating your foundational knowledge as a professional and the exposure you've had to new things and to develop that expertise. If that is the rate of challenge that you're, you're used to, then perhaps it's people, and I feel like I'm you know, projecting this opinion, I guess I, I feel like I recognize it in myself, is perhaps that, that effort that you've had to then get going almost to develop the momentum you expect that that effort is inherent to progress and therefore as soon as you sort of feel yourself feeling more comfortable you feel guilt in that comfort and you think well no actually this is meant to be challenging i remember when it was challenging mm. and I, I maybe just from hearing what you've said there job sort of recognize that in myself is that maybe that's part of the the pressure and almost you you develop in that this sense of imposter um, which I hadn't given thought to before. So yeah, thanks. What's that? I don't know whose quote. <laughs> What's that quote? What got you here won't get you there. I don't know whose quote it is, but yeah, exactly what you're saying, Matt. It's I think we almost get so used to that feeling of oh, it's got to feel hard and a bit horrible because that's that's how I got here, and, and that's obviously the yeah. only way to keep going. And that's the nature of momentum as well, which does apply here. I mean, it's not it's not you know it's not always a perfect thing, and we also know the it's it's uh, momentum. Positive momentum can also be met, meet its nemesis entropy. But I'm just meaning that generally we 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 could we could make the mistake of thinking that everything you know, every like you said everything needs to be a grand. Margaret, I want to bring you in on that in terms of sort of the the effortfulness that people associate needs to be attributable to their lives or their, to their careers and stuff. Is that part of that burden that they always feel obliged to carry? For me, it's about the reason why you do it. And for many people with imposter feelings. It's, you know, if I am less than perfect, then I am a person, I'm not worthy because anything less than perfect is, is just not acceptable. You know, I can't live with myself. I can't be with myself. I am not worthy to be part of this community of practitioners. Right. Whereas right. to say, actually, I am doing my very best and this is the very best work I can do with all this pre preparation, you know, here it is. Let me see, is it good enough? Let me see where I could learn and do it even better and let me celebrate where I have those successes, that's balanced. Whereas to say, you know, anything less than perfect, showing any vulnerability at all, I, I have to be that superhuman all the time, that's unhealthy and unbalanced. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, a bit of a tangent from me, because it's one of the things that emerged from my listening of the, the podcast and things that one of the things that came forward with Joe as a question is that there being a statistical gender imbalance between 
um, sometimes in, in some of the literature, it seems that, that women maybe recognize this or at least report this, which is a relevant difference more than say men. And when, when uh, questioned on that, you described then a completely reasonable sociological analysis about the fact that there's a conditioning factor that can sometimes happen in culturally that can make that difference. One of the things I wanted to bring forward is and invite uh, a challenge in a way as to whether or not there is a relevant evolutionary biological approach to the relevant gender differences that might also mean that they've got a, a more disposition to the average, of course, we're speaking in generalities on the mean, but a, a dispositional relevance to, to, to being female than male, that would also mean that there's a difference there that could emerge. I just wondered your reflections on the gendered piece of this. For me, again, this is not my area of research. I'm only reading about the research there are obvious gender differences. You know, that we're male, we're female, and there's all sorts in between. And that is affected by our genes, our genetics. It's affected by our hormones, you know, before birth and after birth. It's affected by epigenetics, so many different things. It's not as simple as, do you have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, or do you have two Xs or something in between? There's an author called Cordelia, a researcher called Cordelia Fine, who's written a number of books, and one is Delusions of Gender, another is Testosterone Rex. And she has said that while, yes, there are differences between you know, male brains and female brains, the differences between males and females are less than the distribution of differences between men and the distribution between women. So that you give any one brain, and it would be really difficult, if not impossible, for a pathologist to tell you that that was the brain of a man or a woman. So gender as, as a biological effect is, I think, over-exaggerated. I really think it comes down to socialization and culturization. So in different cultures, baby boys and baby girls are treated differently from the earlier stages. A lot of it is quite unconscious by their parents and their caregivers, and there's a huge social impact that is you know, different for boy, baby boys and baby girls as they're growing up. And I think one of the things that research shows that boys learn at a very, very early age is don't be weak. And therefore, faced with feelings of, am I an imposter? Am I not good enough? They won't be seen as weak. In general, men, boys will bluster, they will wing it, they will be brave, they will put on a front to avoid being seen as lacking in some way. I think that goes on to affect how imposter syndrome feelings affect us in, in adult life. Brilliant. Well, thank you. George, I wondered your thoughts on that before I come in with, with, with mine. Mm, add a million thoughts then, Margaret. <laughs> i trying to remember them all. Um, my, your understanding of epigenetics will be greater than mine. Um, could, could it be that this socialization element is so strong that through epigenetics it then becomes biological? Um, you know, through generations and through history. That was one thought I had. Um, and the other thing that occurs to me is what a mishmash being a health professional is in terms of these gender norms. So classically speaking, the feminine would be a more relational uh, behavior model. Um, yep. And you know, if you go right back to cave dwelling days, the women, you know, to survive, they needed to be social and possibly 
exposing vulnerability is a way of um, being relational. I'm thinking of dogs and you're being submissive to each other and, and you're almost yeah. saying, look, this is me, these are my faults. This is a way of me relating to you. And then you've got this professional task-driven expert persona which you're trying to balance with that. And, and that speaks more to the bluff it, wing it, put on a brave face, get through it. So, you know, I often talk, I've spoken with Jack before about this dance we have to play and, and you know, this speaks to that very strongly that we're, we're trying to weave our way through these quite difficult social um, situations. And there's, there's research evidence that show that women who advance in professions that are more masculine professions, more science related professions, they will shed some of their female personality attributes because they see that they don't fit. Yeah. They, because the, the, the drive to belong and be part of a community, if we believe that we need the more masculine science orientated, maths orientated attitudes, then we will do that. We will leave the more feminine bits behind, mm. whether we're male or female. Yeah, so, there's, it's a complex dance of belonging. One of the things that, because it's, it's interesting and not something that we'd, we'd prepare, but I have read Testosterone Rex and I find it to be really interesting take, but I do find Cordelia fine to, to start with a conclusion. I've never read any of her work whereby I don't find that she doesn't start with a premise and then find a way to get there. And in this instance, I've watched a very brief back and forth between her and Simon Baron Cohen, who's a famed, yep. famed um, autism yep. researcher, Borat's cousin, uh, Borat's brother, isn't he? Um, but yep. essentially... The, the the reason I, that I find it to, and I would be arrogant enough to, to, to challenge her conclusions there, is that the fact that the, the overlap is far greater than the difference, which is, which is where she's saying, she's then, when it comes to the socialization on something like bravery, which she brought up, is that it's not, it's not actually biologically deterministic for me to suggest at six foot four and at 16 stone, that I am likely in various contexts to be dispositionally braver by some of my biological traits than say, Joe, when we're walking down the street at a dark night, right? There's something that is relevant to some of the less doubtable factors that are related to my biological sex that are unlikely to have evolved from the neck down than, than the whole of me. And so I feel like what sometimes gets missed in her analysis or when we're trying to weigh up nurture nature on questions like this, is that I don't see what I've just described there, even though it may, may be inaccurate over overplayed, but for me that, that can be part of the same piece. And, and that sometimes we attempt to, to diminish some of those biological norms because it feels more comfortable, because there's a more malleability to the socialization thesis than there is the other. So that, that's just my, my sort of take is that I feel that that does underplay some of the relevant biolog biological things that, that you can't truly uncouple from the social, like, like they, they are all of one, you know, I'm not suggesting it's one or the other, the, the bio or psychosocial, I'm not separating yeah. them off, I'm just meaning that they're in amongst it and I feel like sometimes that there's no need for us to tease those out or to infer that they're not relevant variables. So again, I'm, I'm just admitting that's my sort of take, I wondered if either of you disagree with that analysis. I think it's incredibly complex. You're, you're right. And Joe, yes, some of these changes are, are affected. They're not necessarily genetic. They might be epigenetic or, or other things that, that they can become hardwired. They can become part of our biology. And it, it's possibly impossible to tease them all out. But you know, you could look at things, Jack, like if you looked at 
men of whatever height and weight and size and strength and how brave did they feel walking down that dark alley and then you took women of whatever height and weight and size and musculature and how brave did they feel walking down that dark alley i'm not sure you'd get a clear cut that people over six foot tall with a bit of muscle in their bicep felt safer than people who were five foot tall you know it's complicated and what I want to say here is because we're talking about imposter syndrome feelings and how they affect us, I don't want to make a big thing about the fact that there are observable differences between men and women and say, therefore, this is, you know, gender is the cause, because people are different. Even if you look at women who know that they are affected by imposter syndrome feelings, they will react in different ways. And so the question for me comes, you know, what are the feelings, which ones are helpful, which ones are unhelpful, and what are you going to do about it? Right. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, because that's the that's the that's the appropriate conclusion, certainly for this conversation, just because I know we are out of time now. But it's just that that take home of, of recognizing in yourself as to when these things are limiting you rather than fueling you, when you recognizing these these as being sometimes very natural and normal emotions, not a syndrome, but a set of feelings, a, a self-perception is that knowing when to appropriately counter them so that you don't limit your ambitions. Because especially in our industry, the thing that I'm at pains to say, and my whole professional project about raising standards in our industry across various different things is because there's such a significant social gain to us getting our shit together. Forgive yes. my language, right? So, so if, we, if we don't maximize the human potential that happens to coincidentally be expert in this space, then that is just a, such a waste of talent. We talk yeah. about recruitment challenges and stuff. It's like we're all working at 60% of potential. That's just like that's the, the biggest gains we can make is to just truly unlock that. And so thank you so much, both of you, for bringing this work forward and discussing it so openly, being so open, of course, to, to the, 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 the tepid challenges I've brought today. Uh, but yeah, could you just tell us a little bit in summary as to where people can find out more about you and, and, and your work? So I'm going to first, if you would. Uh, my website, margaretcollins.com, and I have a special page, margaretcollins.com forward slash you matter, that has special resources for people who listen to Joe's podcast and to this, Jack. They can go to margaretcollins.com forward slash you matter. Fantastic. And I'm just typing that in frantically, and hopefully I've not put a typo in there. But Joe, mehab.co.uk is that the best place for us to that's, signpost people yeah that's a very place best place to find me now and through mehab.co.uk you can find my community which is mehub you can um you can join via via the mehab website fantastic so i've put those onto sure. the chats for those that those that can see them mehab.co.uk and margaretcollins.com forward slash you oh, i've put you matters haven't yeah. i yeah take Sorry. off the yes fine <laughs> I'm going to go again. I'm going to go again. Right, bear with me, gang. Let's see. For those of you that click that link, it's broken. I did. I did say that I was. I thought I might end up uh, putting the typo in there. So let's let's correct that. that Jack, again. I'm going to leave you with the thought that we've never actually met in person, and I, I am actually six foot four and sixteen stone. So wait till we meet. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be so brave then, will I? When we're in no. conversation next, I'll be, I'll be waiting for a life and especially with my cheekiness of questions. So no, that's interesting. <laughs> interesting you say it, and of course, you know, I. Uh, I, I love the fact that, that this is exactly the sort of conversation we can have on and off air, Joe, that, that help us to tease out some of the variables. And as Margaret said, and, and definitely as part of my analysis, is this stuff is messy. For no, you know, no one there it needs to hear any conclusions uh, from us as to suggest we've got it all sorted. And that includes this stuff. I think one of the things that was really interesting about your podcast together was the sharing of that natural vulnerability that comes from 
you can be as expert as you want in this, but none of us are immune to that sense sometimes that we we, we, we allow ourselves the self-doubt. And as long as that doesn't become pathological, let's sometimes use it as fuel, but let's not limit our ambitions in that direction. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And for those of you that have, uh, have posted comments, just to bring in a couple of final ones, um, Ria's made a great point here about the physio profession being quite critical of each other when compared to others. And her medic friends cannot, sorry, I don't know if it's her or he, I don't know that, that name, sorry. Uh, my medic friends cannot believe the interview processes we have. One of the things I wanted to bring that up last for is because I think it's something that's important and you've been asking me to reflect on in future chewing it over episodes as to whether or not me talking about this stuff, there's been accusations leveled at me for being a bit of a hypocrite, for holding us to high standards sometimes as a profession and whether or not I feel any regret for for some of that, I've been part of that critical force that sometimes only enhance people's imposters a little bit. So there's a lot for me to reflect on. I've got some answers, some more defensive than I'd like, admittedly, but I will be chewing that over when I next have a solo episode. Or maybe Joe can counsel me on that on our next Wellbeing Wednesday. We'll see. But thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. And we'll speak again tomorrow. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye. Thanks, Margaret. <laughs>